0: Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming out here and happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there. It's exciting to uh, be in this worship service with you this morning. You know, not only is it today Father's Day, but on a personal note, today marks my seventh anniversary as being the pastor of this great church here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. Thank you. I I was just reflecting back on that this week and just thinking about the past seven years and and it occurred to me not only do I have the privilege of being able to pastor my own dad who's sitting right up here and you know I'm just returning the favor because he was my pastor all of my life growing up and and uh, you know being a preacher's kid and not only now I have the opportunity to be His pastor and and my mother and and, and my family as well. But I just began to think a lot about a lot of the men, the spiritual fathers that I have had in this church, men who may not be old enough to be my dad, but nevertheless, they are men who have invested into my life. They've cared for me. They've counseled me. They've loved me. They've they've encouraged me at times when I needed encouragement. They have uh, given me good advice in certain areas where I really needed that. They have taken the time to pray for me and to be an encouragement to my family and and have loved on my wife and my kids. And you know, I just want to say that, you know, when you are a pastor and that's the kind of church and those are the kind of people that you get to pastor, you know, you you just can't help but love them and to love them even more. And so I just want to say to all of you who have invested into my life and who continue to do that, thank you. Thank you and happy Father's Day to you. Uh, from me and from my family as well. And, and let me just say this. Um, to all of you out there, men, women, boys, and girls, it is truly a privilege, a privilege to be called your pastor. And I'm grateful for the opportunity that I am given week after week after week after week. And as I told my deacons, we met this last week, told my deacon family ministers, I said, Okay, it's been a great seven years, now let's focus on the next seven and let's continue serving the Lord together. So it's an exciting time and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to be your pastor. If you've got your Bibles and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel, the fourth chapter, and we've spent the last couple of weeks in chapter four, actually. We've been looking at some of the teaching that Jesus has been giving to us concerning the kingdom of God. And he has done that by telling us parables. That's the the means by which he has taught us in the last few weeks. And these parables, as you will know, Jesus was teaching this. He was doing it down by the seashore. He was down by the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd was so large that had come to to hear him and to be able to, to listen to him teach that... The beginning of chapter 4 tells us that Jesus actually got into a boat with some of his disciples and pushed back away from the shoreline so that he could see everybody. There were so many of them down there by the seashore. And he began to teach from that boat. Well, then Mark tells us after the teaching time was over with, he begins to tell us that, some, that, that later on, perhaps in that evening, Jesus decided that it was time for them to push away and, and actually sail to the other side of the sea. And so doing that, having had a full day of teaching and experiencing all of that that comes with that, Jesus decided to, to take a nap and he laid down. And that, that's really an important issue that we ought to know to point in point in the story because what it attests to us is that Jesus was not only God, fully God, but he was also fully human as well. And after a full day of teaching and, and all of the things that he had been engaged in, he was, he was tired. He experienced the same sort of emotions, the same sort of physical exhaustion, same sort of ramifications of a full day of ministering to people that you and I under similar circumstances would have also experienced. And so Jesus, he gets in that boat and he lays down and he goes to sleep. And that's really where we pick up. Verse 35, we'll backtrack just a little bit and then let's read down through the end of the chapter of Mark chapter four this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. On the same day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. He was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the beauty of it. Thank you for that it it exposes us, that it penetrates down to the very heart of who we are. I pray that today that that is exactly what your word will accomplish through the working of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are tender and receptive to your word today. Make us more like Christ. Draw us closer to you, we pray in Christ's name, amen. For those of you who've been with us on this journey through the gospel of Mark now for quite a few months, you'll recall that I have repeatedly made the point that when Mark wrote what he did, he did so in such a way to draw us into an answering of some specific questions. Each of the passages that we come across, Mark writes in such a way that he draws us to, if not all three, at least to a part, a portion of the three questions that are, are prevalent throughout this entire book. And those questions are simply this. Who is Jesus? What kind of Messiah is Jesus? And what difference do the answer to those two questions make? Or what difference should they make in our lives? Well, as you can tell from this passage that Jesus is out on the boat with these disciples and and suddenly this summer storm comes up and, and just makes this big mess and Jesus calms it all down. These disciples are grappling with that same question. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You and I should ponder the same question. A few years ago, it was on a warm summer night like what we've been having recently, and then there was a summer storm kind of moved through uh, where we were living at the time over in Tecula, and and it struck just about bedtime. And Caroline and I were tucking our kids into bed, and, and in the process of that, Right in the middle of it, there was a big clap of thunder outside and it was one of those kind that sort of jar the walls and scare you a little bit. And and I was just putting Maggie down and Maggie looked up at me and she told me that she didn't think she was going to be able to sleep by herself with all that lightning and thunder going on. And I, of course, wanted to reassure her that she would be fine and all she needed to do was listen to the music that we had playing on the radio and, and that she could pray to Jesus because Jesus is always there in the middle of everything and just to, just to calm down, everything would be good. A little later, after Caroline and I had gone downstairs, once again, the lightning just lit up the sky outside and it was one of those kind that was immediately followed by that thunder and it was loud and it was right on top of us and... Sure enough, there comes the door open. There's Maggie. She reappears. and She reminds her mother and I that she couldn't sleep by herself with the storm outside. Now, what struck me about what Maggie asked was not that she asked me to stop the storm. That thought never even occurred to her. Even at her young age, she realized that storms come. She realized that that winds blow, she knew that lightning flashes, and she knew that thunder rolled and it was loud and scary. But she didn't even think to stop, to ask me to stop the storm. What she wanted was the assurance that her mommy and daddy would be with her through the storm until it had passed by. Now, in reflection on that experience through the years, I have often thought about how much more mature and theologically correct Maggie's response to that storm was than my responses typically are. Quite frankly, you see my normal response when the storms of life come and when the difficulties and when the stresses hit me, my normal response is to ask God to stop the storm. My normal response is to ask him to get rid of my problems. I normally want him to remove all my hardships. My request is, God, make my life comfortable again. That's how I typically want to respond to the storms of life. Sadly, I often mistakenly believe that my peace and my security are dependent upon my circumstances rather than upon the one who has promised to never leave me and never forsake me in spite of my circumstances. If you've lived for any length of time at all, you already have come to know that storms come, don't they? The old adage is true, that you're either in a storm right now or you're coming out of one or you're about to go into one. We who've lived for at least any length of time know that that's the case. In fact, here's the thing. None of us are immune to storms. And so if you find your security and you find your peace and those things are dependent upon the fact that you never go through a storm, then you will certainly never experience peace and security. Therefore, this is the question. What if God, what if His design for allowing struggles and trials and stresses and challenges in our life, what if the storms of life are not designed to draw our attention to them so that we run away in fear, or we beg to be delivered from them? What if their design is not to draw our attention to ourselves and to the grief that we may experience over the loss of of a loved one or our health or our financial security? But rather, what if God's design for the storms that come into our lives are to draw our attention to Him? What if... God allows storms to come in order to reveal the one who will be there until the storm passes. The passage that I've read from you for in, in, in Mark's gospel here has likely been a very familiar story. You've likely heard it since you were an infant. It's one of those favorites that many pastors preach from and that we have all kinds of stories and we've probably heard it a thousand times. This is my goal this morning. I hope that your familiarity with the text will not actually distance you from it. That's happened sometimes. Sometimes we become so familiar with a passage of Scripture that when we hear it read, we just immediately assume that we know all the answers that there are to it. I hope that that won't happen today. Not because I think that I'm going to be able to reveal anything to you that you've not had revealed before but because the Word of God is still active and it's alive and it still works and still the Holy Spirit still uses it to bring understanding to our hearts and conviction there as well. Today I want to point you to a few things that I think will help us better understand this narrative. Things that I hope will challenge our thinking with regard to the storms of life and to the Lord who is greater than all those storms. The first thing that I want you to note, and I've included it on your outline if you received a bulletin when you came in, it's there. The first thing that I want you to note this morning is this. Obedience to Jesus does not insulate us from the sudden, surprising and severe storms of life. Notice this, according to verse 35, it was at the command of Jesus that his disciples set sail for the other side of the lake. Jesus tells them, "Let us cross to the other side." So in obedience to what Christ had asked them to do, the disciples began to make their way across the lake and then according to verse 37, that's when the great windstorm actually arose out of nowhere. The waves began to become so great they were coming over the sides of the boat and filling up the boat and, and it, the, 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 the perishing was, was there. They could potentially drown and the boat sink. And what was true about the storm that these disciples encountered, you know, it's also true about a lot of the storms that you and I encounter in our lives. Often they come about Suddenly. It's in a split second, seemingly out of nowhere. All it takes is a phone call to change everything. Am I right? A phone call from a doctor's office with results from a scan and a test that you had. A phone call from another source letting you know someone you loved so much is no longer with you. All it takes is a, an accident driving down the road, someone out of nowhere hits you. Perhaps it's a, a relationship that breaks apart. Everything can happen very suddenly in our lives. And not only can it happen suddenly, but the sudden nature of it often causes it to be surprising. You know, we know that there's always the potential for storms to come into our lives. These disciples, many of them were, were veterans of that sea. They knew that storms would rise on that, on, it could, out of nowhere at typical times, but that still didn't make it any less surprising when it actually hit them. But even worse, storms can also be severe. Notice the intensity with which the disciples, when they wake Jesus and they ask him this question, they say in verse 38, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That gives us the understanding of just how severe this storm actually was. I mentioned to you four of the disciples were professional fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, John, they made their living out on the sea. This was where they earned their livelihood. And yet they are so concerned about the severity of this sudden and surprising and severe storm that they call out to Jesus obviously thinking that they were going to drown. I like how John MacArthur has put it. He said it's a dark day when sailors call on a carpenter to get them out of a storm. This storm, like many of the storms that you may be going through sudden, severe, and surprising. But what, what perhaps is even more surprising to us is the reason why they encountered it. You see, it was their obedience that got them there. And that's what we've learned, is that obedience to Christ doesn't insulate us from the sudden storms of life. It should be stated now that disobedience will often bring about a storm in our life. If we're disobedient to Christ and we take ourselves out from underneath His umbrella of grace and care, we can find ourselves in the middle of a storm very quickly. We might also say that in our disobedience, some of the, re- the reactions to our disobedience can often create storms in our lives. That is also true, but patently true here in this passage is that it was the obedience of the disciples that brought them into the middle of this storm. That consideration may unsettle you. It may even unnerve you. Perhaps you've always thought that obedience would keep you from having problems. Maybe you've operated off of the concept that if I just live a good life and do good things, then then everything will go well for me. Maybe you've always thought, well, if I just do what Jesus says to do, or if I go where Jesus tells me to go, then somehow he will just make and chart an easy course for my life and I'll be free from trouble. If that has been your thought processes, this passage is going to challenge that line of thinking. You see, if you have come to believe that only only in a God that prevents you from going through trouble and storms, then when a storm comes, you will have only one of two options you will either have to run away and find another God to believe in or you'll have to re-examine your understanding of God. In an honest reading of this text, in an honest assessment of our own life experiences, tell us that furious squalls will come without warning, suddenly, unexpectedly, surprisingly, and severely. What we know is when that happens... Following Jesus does not insulate us from their attack on our lives. That's the first thing we need to know. second thing that I want you to know from this text is this. when storms come, we may mistakenly believe that the Lord is uncaring. We may mistakenly believe that the Lord is uncaring. The scene out of, of, of Mark's gospel here in the Sea of Galilee is reminiscent of, well, Gilligan's Island. I grew up watching Gilligan's Island. Some of you probably did too. You remember how that that song there went, right? The weather started getting rough. Tiny ship was tossed. You know the next next line, right? That's just like Mark 4. But then Gilligan's Island, if not for the courage of the fearless crew. Now that that has no parallel with this passage in Mark 4 because this crew was completely overwhelmed with terror. They were so scared about what was happening. They were in desperation. They they were so desperate that they wake Jesus up, who, by the way, had been sleeping this entire time on a cushion in the boat. And then they rebuke him when they wake him up. They say, teacher, don't you care about what's happening to us? Don't you care that we're perishing? R.C. Sproul, he observes this. He said, how typical of the creature to rebuke the creator. How like the servant to sass the master. In this instance, what we recognize is that to the disciples, Jesus seemed to be unaware. He seemed to be uncaring for the danger that they faced. Now let me ask you, does that fact that Jesus is asleep when this great big old storm is nearly going to swamp this boat, does that bother you? It's certainly not what we expect, is it? Perhaps we might even go so far to say is it sleeping it is not exactly the image that we really would like the world out there to know about our Savior. That he sleeps when storms come. But consider this that Jesus can sleep in the middle of such a raging storm, it actually represents a deeper significance. It represents a sign of trust in God. It it represents a deep and abiding trust that is contrasted with the utter terror that is being displayed by the disciples. But the disciples don't interpret Jesus' sleep as evidence of his trust in God. Rather, they regard it as a token of his indifference to their safety. So when they wake him up, they ask, don't you care? Various commentators have noted the bitter irony that actually takes place here. Because you see, on this particular night, the disciples are upset with Jesus that he's sleeping while the storm is raging. But if we fast forward to the end of Mark's gospel, we'll find that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked those same disciples to stay awake and to pray with him during the night of his terror as he awaited the crucifixion that would come. And these same disciples continued to nod off and go to sleep. Back here on the lake, though, we see the disciples' terror boil over into what amounts to a question as, whether or not Jesus cares about them. Maybe you've had that same question. Maybe sometimes something has come into your life and it's been so terrifying and so difficult that you yourself have asked, God, do you really care about me? Do you see what's happening? Do you care what's going on in my life? I want you to know if you've ever asked that question, it's not new and it's not unique to you. In fact, we see it repeatedly throughout scripture. In fact, the psalmist asked that question in Psalm 10 verse 1. He asks, why do you stand up Afar off, O Lord, why do you hide in times of trouble? We might interpret the psalmist's question this way. God, you're never around when I need you. Don't you care? Psalm 44, verses 22 and 23 says, Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. We might reinterpret the question this way. God, how can you be sleeping when we're dying for you? And then the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 51, verses 9 and 10, he writes this. He says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days. Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to walk over? The prophet is saying, Wake up and get up, God. Don't you see the terrible dilemma of your people? How can you possibly sleep through this? These responses are very similar to those of the disciples. And they're very likely similar to some of the responses that you and I have had to the troubles that we faced in our own lives. God, how can you let this happen to me? Do you really love me? If you did, you wouldn't let this happen to me. How can you let me go through this? So what we've noticed so far is that obedience to Jesus does not insulate us from the sudden surprising and severe storms of life. Secondly, what we've noted is if we're honest, when storms come, we mistakenly often believe that the Lord is uncaring. Now I want you to know those observations then lead us to the very last half of this section. It sets the stage for the miracle that takes place in verse 39. It sets the stage for our Lord's own rebuke, own rebuke of his own disciples in verse 40. And then the shock and awestruck response of the disciples in verse 41. And that leads me to the third and final point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. The third point that I want you to note that this text teaches us about the storms of life is this. The storms of life, well, they are an essential part of our spiritual growth. Storms are an essential part of the spiritual growth of every disciple. Notice what happens when the disciples wake Jesus up. Verse thirty-nine says that Jesus stood up and he said, "Peace, be still." That's very nice in the English translation. The Greek has it a little more forceful. Jesus stands up in the boat and says, "Shut up, hush, quiet." And you know what happens? Suddenly, the wind stopped blowing. <laughs> it just quits. Not only the wind, but the waves stop rocking. Now let me ask you this: It's one thing to tell the wind to stop blowing, and that we can feel that all of a sudden the wind stops. What typically happens with water, though? It continues to move back and forth until it finally calms down. Right? Not not here. When Jesus says "shut up," he says it, and both the wind stops and the waves and everything becomes calm. It's like this placid little sea. That's an amazing display of the miraculous power of Jesus. Would you not disagree with that? Then in verse 40, we read that Jesus then turns around, looks at his disciples, and he said to them, why are you so fearful? Now here it's Jesus' turn to issue a rebuke. Earlier, they'd ask him, did he not care that they were perishing here? He wants to know why they're so afraid. And in all honesty, we might say, well, it's obvious why we're afraid. We were about to drown. But it's interesting the word that Jesus uses here. It's the Greek word delioi, which means to be cowardly or to show fear in a shameful way. It's a word that means to have no faith, which is exactly what Jesus asks his disciples next. He says, how is it that you have no faith? It's the kind of fear and the lack of faith that Jesus talks about here, it's the same way it's used to describe sinners in Revelation 21 verse 8. Sinners who have no faith and, and all fear and the scriptures say that they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, by his question, Jesus is exposing their fear and their lack of faith and in effect, he's asking his disciples, don't you believe in me? Don't you believe in my love and my power? Don't you trust in me? Daryl Bach, he he notes that the Lord's rebuke of his disciples' faith was not really about their initial faith in him as much as it was about uh, an applied faith and that their depth of understanding that comes along with that that can be drawn upon in tough times. It's a faith that he says kicks in and recognizes that God's in control even in the face of disaster. That's what Jesus wants to know. He says, guys, do you not know who I am? Do you not trust me? You see, the disciples were concerned about the storm. They were focusing on their circumstances. Jesus, on the other hand, was forcing them to take their eyes off of the storm and the effects of it and to put their eyes completely and totally on Him, the one who was in the boat with them. Brothers and sisters, when we go through the storms of life, we should concentrate on the same thing. Consider what the scriptures tell us elsewhere. Again, back to the psalm, Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. The psalmist writes, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you? O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or consider the 46th psalm. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in times of trouble. Or the 107th psalm. Listen to this one. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For He commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea and they mount up to the heavens and then they go down again to the depths and their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and at their wits end and then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and He brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still and they are glad because they are quiet. So He guides them to their desired haven. Many scholars have noted the similarities between Mark 4 and Psalm 107. Both texts point us to the ability that the Lord has to transform a great storm into a great calm with just a word. And both texts actually reveal that God has the power to do that because He's the one who created the sea to begin with. See, if the disciples had only understood that they had set sail with the one who had such power then they would have had to have confessed that all of their fears were groundless. So would you and I. You see, in fact, Kent Hughes writes this. He says, what kind of faith casts out fear? What's well, it's a faith that believes the scriptural revelation about the power and love of Christ. What's interesting about this passage is that Mark uses the word mega three times. Mega is a word in Greek that we use it in English so we kind of know it means exceedingly large or great. And and Mark uses that word the first time in relation to the storm in verse 37. He calls it a great windstorm, a mega windstorm. Then down in verse 39, he describes the great calm, the mega calm that came across the lake after he had spoken to it. Then finally... Mark uses the word mega to describe the great fear of the disciples once Jesus had stilled the storm. Verse 41, he says that the disciples feared exceedingly or literally they feared a great fear. They feared a mega fear. That word fear is different from the other one. This is the word that we get our word phobia from. And phobia kind of is the the idea of a terrified, to be greatly alarmed. But with that understanding also comes the connotation of having respect, being awestruck, showing reverence toward. And that is obviously the effect that Jesus' miracle had upon those disciples. So we see that Jesus, by his command, leads the disciples into a mega storm. By his command, he calms and brings about a mega calm. And then, because of the miracle, he creates another mega storm inside the hearts of his own disciples. In fact, I believe this is Mark's message to us. Having encountered the raw power of Jesus, the disciples are awestruck. They're astounded by what has transpired, and they want to know Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Who indeed? Friend, what this passage teaches us is that Jesus is the one who not only can handle nature, but as we'll see next week, the Lord willing, He can handle the demonic powers of the world. And as we'll see in weeks following, He can raise those who have died from the dead. What we're going to learn is that this man, this God, this Jesus, he is the one who has all power over all things, and that power extends even into my life and into your life. That's the primary point that Mark wants to convey. Too often this passage is taught to mean that Jesus is the answer to all of life's storms. Too often this passage is is, is taught that if you'll just call on Jesus, well, he'll calm all the storms in your life. However, the emphasis in this passage is not on how we are to avert the storms of life. In fact, none of us can avert the storms of life. The truth is, if we live obediently to Christ, we're going to encounter some storms in our lives. When they come, we shouldn't imagine that the Lord has somehow forgotten about us that he has somehow gone to sleep on us and that he doesn't care. Rather, we should recognize that through the storms we face, we are able to grow and we are able to mature in our faith, knowing that the Lord Jesus is greater than any storm that we face. The point of this passage is not the storm. Rather, the point is Jesus who is and our faith in him. In other words, Jesus led his disciples right into the heart of a storm so that they could see who he truly was and have their faith tempered and tested like hardened steel. That leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The storms of life provide us with the opportunity to be awestruck at the identity, authority, and majesty of Jesus and of the faith that we must have in him. You know, as I considered this passage this week, I was drawn really to the panicked response of the disciples and just how like them I am. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the parallel to this, the disciples are quoted as saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. You see, the reality of the threat of death was real. In fact, what this storm and what the storms that you and I face remind us in the broader sense of is that The threat of death is always there. Because of sin, the Bible tells us that all of us face the reality of death. And not just physical death. All of us understand that. But because of the reality of sin, we all face the reality of spiritual death, which by its definition means eternal separation from God. However, I want you to know, just as Jesus displayed His mighty power to calm the winds and the waves of the Sea of Galilee... He has also displayed His mighty power in being able to calm the storm of death in your life. He did that by coming to die in your place on the cross at Calvary. And the scriptures tell us that those facing sure and certain spiritual death, if they will acknowledge their sin and cry out to God to save them through the work of His Son, Jesus, God will do that. Jesus miraculously rescued his disciples from the storm that they faced and he promises that he will miraculously rescue any and all who will cry out to him and ask to be saved. If you've never done that, then I want you to know the Lord bids you to do that today. He invites you to receive his salvation, to receive his rescue from the mega storm that is created in your life by sin. Trust in him today and be saved. Perhaps you're in the middle of a storm right now in your own life for various reasons. Know that the Lord does care about you. Know that if you are a Christian, He is in the boat with you. You can call out to it. Your peace and your security, they are not tied to your circumstances. Rather, they are tied to the Christ who loved you and gave Himself up for you. So you can trust in Him and let Him provide you with the strength that you need. Brothers and sisters, This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.